If you have a copy of God's Word, take it out. Turn there, scroll there to Matthew chapter 5 if you have a copy of God's Word this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, Matthew chapter 5. We've been in a series on the Beatitudes that we're calling The Good Life because we believe these are Jesus' invitation to the good life, both now and forever. And so if you have your place in your Bible, let's read all of the Beatitudes this morning. Starting in Matthew chapter five, verse one, it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who came before you. This is God's word. God, we're thankful for your word. Would you speak to us from it this morning? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning we're gonna be in verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What is mercy? When you hear the word mercy, what do you think of? Okay, I was born in 1992, so I watched Full House growing up. Do you know where I'm going? When you think of mercy, you think Uncle Jesse, have mercy. Or maybe you were raised in the South like me. I know so many of you were not. And I take it as my great responsibility to teach you some things about the South while you're here at Shalford. And if you grew up in the South, and if you were blessed to know your grandmother, and she also grew up here in the South, you know we have a very kind way, a couple kind ways of saying you are a moron. One of them is bless your heart. If you're not from the South, they're not blessing your heart. They're having great pity on you. The other way is your grandmother may have said in a fit of anger, Lord have mercy. Yes, she is praying that God might have mercy on you from her own wrath, from your parents' wrath. Maybe that's how you've heard the word mercy used, or maybe like me, maybe you grew up in the church and mercy was used almost exclusively in this phrase, mercy ministry, and it was a certain kind of ministry grouping in the church. But have you ever looked at the Bible? What does scripture say mercy really is? I think what we're gonna see this morning from this text is that we can be merciful toward others because of the mercy God has shown us. We can be merciful toward others because of the mercy God has shown us. So first, what is mercy? How do we typically think of it? Well, first, here's what I think mercy is. Mercy is three things. It's seeing misery, having a broken heart because of what you see, and then taking action to bring relief. Seeing the misery, having a broken heart, and taking action to bring relief to that miserable situation. And you say, where are you getting this? Well, I think we see, we could see this in a lot of places in scripture, but look at just the life of Jesus. And if you were to just do a search for the word mercy in the gospels, you would get a lot of hits. But one of the things I think you see is people 
that either say Jesus had mercy on them, people that Jesus had mercy on, or people that cry out, have mercy on me. And we see this in a lot of places. We see blind beggars, often on the side of the road. Sometimes in some of the stories, people are telling them, quiet down. Stop, stop bothering him. He's got better things to do. In Matthew 9, Matthew 20, Mark 10, we see blind beggars begging for Jesus to have mercy on them. In Luke 17, we read a story of 10 lepers who come to Jesus. And it says Jesus showed mercy to the lepers. We see in Matthew 15 and Mark 5 that people who were demon-possessed, it says Jesus had mercy on them. Now, all these situations have in common that they were in a miserable place, either marred by a, a disease that made them unclean in that culture, or they were blind, or they were possessed by an evil spirit, couldn't even live a normal life, but Jesus looked at them and had mercy. He saw their misery, his heart was broken, and then our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ took the action that was necessary to bring relief to them. And when we hear about this mercy, can't you think of 10,000 ways that mercy is needed today? Just on this earth, like we need people who look at situations and see it for what it is, that it's miserable. There's real misery. But not just see the misery, but actually have a broken heart over it. And then not just have a broken heart, but actually take action to bring relief to it. Can't you think of 10,000 ways like international conflict or what's happening in Ukraine or even just sicknesses or suffering around the world or maybe even relationally in your own life, in your own household, you can think of specific instances where mercy could have really brought some resolution to this conflict. Or maybe you look in at your own heart and you think, I need, I'm in a, in a place of misery and I could use some mercy. When we see what mercy is, I think it doesn't take you long to realize how many places it's needed. So that's what mercy is. It's seeing misery with a broken heart and taking action to bring relief. The second point this morning is why is mercy so hard for me? Why is mercy so difficult for all of us? And I think the first point is that we don't see it. We don't see misery. We don't see people's miserable circumstances. And I think there's a few reasons for it. One of them is we're just so distracted. Goodness, we are distracted. We might hear of something bad happening. Carrie tried to do this the other night. We're getting ready for bed. And she said, oh my goodness, I have to tell you about the saddest story. And I said, wait until tomorrow. I don't want to dream about that. I can, I can put those kind of things off, and we can all put those kind of things off. When you know something's bad or hard or sad, you can go, hey, bring me to the next post, show me the next video, click the next show, please just keep scrolling past the misery. I, don't, I think we don't even see it sometimes, but even if we do see it, we often don't have a broken heart over it. If you happen to see the misery, if you happen to see how hard things really are for certain people or in our world, we don't have a broken heart over it. Why? I think we're numb. Maybe we've seen it so much. We've seen it happen over and over. We go, eh, just another shooting, just another act of terror, just another 
year of awful things happening in our world, and we just kind of keep moving right on by, and we talked about this a few sermons ago when we talked about mourning, lamenting the brokenness in the world that's all a result of the fall. Maybe we're numb, but maybe the other reason we don't have a broken heart is because we tend to blame people for the circumstances they're in. Right, like we're such an individualistic culture and society that when we see someone in a bad situation, maybe our first thought is, that's what you get. What did you do to end up there? Well, if, if this is your fault, I don't need to have a broken heart over this. You ought to get yourself out of that. So we don't see misery, we're not brokenhearted over it, and sometimes we don't take any action to relieve it. Even if we have a broken heart, we think, you know what, that's really sad, but what am I supposed to do? I've got enough problems in my own life. I can't do anything to fix that. It makes you think about the parable of the Good Samaritan, how many people went right on by the person that had been beaten on the side of the road. We don't see misery, we don't have a broken heart over it, we don't take any action to relieve it, and we're actually totally okay to live without mercy until we're the one who needs it. Like we're totally okay in a merciless world until we need mercy. Then all of a sudden, oh no, Someone please show me mercy. Give me another chance. And I can't help but think of the culture we live in now that so many people have called cancel culture. Mess up one time and you're out. What's happening now is cancel culture begins to eat each other. And somebody who was once on the inside canceling people, well, you messed up, you're out. You're never gonna be in another movie. You're never gonna run for political office. You're never gonna have any place of influence again. You are canceled. I will shun you and ban you forever. As if someone could really do that, but that's the kind of culture we live in. But then, oh no, the guns have turned at me and now I'm the one getting canceled. And then you have people saying, no, no, give me another chance. No, no, let me back in. We're okay with a merciless world until we're the ones who need the mercy. Makes you think of Matthew chapter 18. Jesus tells a a parable of a man who owed 10,000 talents and it, there's a note in my scripture, maybe in yours too, that gives us an understanding that a, a talent was about 20 years of wages for a laborer. So 20 times 10,000 years of wages. And the master forgives them. I mean, maybe out of desperation, maybe out of realizing like you don't even have a chance, but he forgives them. So what does this servant do? Well, naturally, he goes and forgives everyone, Right? Of their debts. No. He goes and he says in Matthew 18, 28, when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Now, denarius was like a day's wages. So a couple hundred days or a few thousand years worth of wages. And he had been forgiven this great debt and couldn't find it himself to forgive others. We're okay with a merciless world until we're the one who needs the mercy, right? He wanted the mercy. He wasn't willing to turn around and give it. Mercy is difficult for us. So who will give us mercy? This is where we make our way into this text this morning as we look at this biblical picture of mercy and we say, who's gonna give me mercy? If I need it, if I find myself in need, who is the merciful one? Well, it's God. God is the only one that can really give us mercy. First, because God sees our misery. I think about Psalm 18, verse six. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help, and from his temple, he heard my voice. 
And my cry to him reached his ears. Psalm 116, verses one and two. It says how much he loves the Lord, and he says, I love you because he has heard my voice in my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. Or, or how about Exodus chapter two? The people are in, Israelites are in 400 years of slavery and bondage in Egypt. And it says at the end of chapter two that their cries made their way to heaven. And God heard them. And here's Exodus chapter two, verse 25. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. What did God know? God knew they were his people still. God knew their pain. God knew their struggle. He knew their slavery and their bondage. And he planned to stay faithful to the covenant he had made with their forefathers, Abraham, to redeem them out of that. God saw them in their misery. And this morning, God sees you in your misery. We're gonna talk about what kind of misery God sees you in in just a minute, but the first thing to realize is that God sees us in our misery. He's not lost sight of you. But then God is also brokenhearted over our misery. You say, how does that work? God is so brokenhearted over our misery that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to walk a mile in our shoes, so to speak. God became a man The son of God became a man so that he could feel exhausted, so that he could know what it meant to be a human, so that he could be hungry and thirsty and weak and tired, be tempted to sin and never give in. So Jesus is literally brokenhearted over our misery because he has tasted it all himself. So God sees our misery, he's brokenhearted over our misery, but God brings relief to our misery. And now this is where we can begin to get specific. On the one hand, God brings general relief. Theologian in the Reformation said, general relief is like that relief that we most often pray for, relief from our circumstances. Now isn't that what we most think of when we think of mercy, right? Bring relief to my really hard, miserable circumstance in life even awful things that we want to bring relief to, like famine or hunger, relational problems. Bring me relief. This is what we often pray for when we say, God, have mercy on me. We think of this kind of relief, this generic relief, but God also brings specific relief in Christ because God knows that our greatest misery is not just that we have hard times in this life. Our greatest misery is not just that we're hungry or need clothes or are thirsty. God knows our greatest misery is that we are without him. And so God has taken action to bring relief to us in Christ. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Romans chapter five. While we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How does God bring relief to thinking I'm not able to be loved by anyone, God loves you when you are precisely at your unloveliest. God doesn't love you because you're lovely. God's love makes you lovely. 
Our miserable state apart from God is solved in Christ where God in Christ pours out his love for us, proves his love for us. Uh, Our miserable state of being dead in our sin, God makes us alive in Christ, Ephesians 2 verses four and five. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Or I think about all of Romans eight, right? All of Romans 8 paints this picture of God bringing us relief in Jesus Christ. Because all of Romans 8 is talking about what has happened as a result of Jesus. That now we live by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Our miserable state of saying, how do I get by in this life? God says, I provide for you. This state of misery that says, I don't belong anywhere. God gives you the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. This miserable state of what he says in verse 18 in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. We suffer here, or even the miserable state of being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, but being so spiritually confused we don't even know how to pray. Right, like we can all admit that we've been there. He brings relief because he says, the spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The verse before that he says, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. We don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit intercedes for us. But the Spirit intercedes for us. The challenge of how God brings relief to us though, and this is what's really challenging for us right now in this moment, is receiving it. Because receiving mercy can be embarrassing can't it? Because it requires you to admit your need. And we don't want to do that, right? I don't want to admit that I'm in a state to need mercy. And if you can't admit that you're in a state to need mercy, you can never receive mercy. It it brings me back to Luke 18. We preached through this in, I think it was January, this parable that Jesus tells, this story about the Pharisee and the tax collector and they're standing in the temple praying and the Pharisee prays this elegant prayer. Thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Not like this tax collector, but I, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, see my misery because I see it. God, have a broken heart over my state of being, because my heart's broken over my own state of being, and have mercy on me. God, bring relief to me, a sinner. Do we see ourselves like the tax collector or like the Pharisee? The hardest part about receiving God's mercy is admitting that we need it. How do you struggle to confess your own need for mercy today? What are the things you don't want to confess you need because you think, I ought to have this down by now? Being a parent? Goodness, I number of kids I have, people probably think I know what I'm doing. I better act like it. <laughs> right? It's kind of like this imposter syndrome. You're waiting on someone to find out that you really have no idea what you're doing. Can I tell you a secret? 
I feel like that as a pastor almost every day. Not usually not Saturdays or my day off. But most days I, I really do. You know, when I came full time here, for the first few months it was part time, and I came full time and I go to lunch with Al. Al could tell you this because we've told the story a lot of times. We sit down at Zaxby's right by his house in Roswell. And he's just kind of like, you excited? You know, it's full time. You right? And I'd never been full time on staff at a church before. I said, I'm super excited. He's like, well, what, you know, what, what do you think? What questions do you have? I said, yeah, so what do I do like all day? <laughs> like I'm not preaching this week or most weeks because you preach. And I mean, I love our people, but they're all at work. So like, what do I do? but there's something in me that feels shameful about not knowing. Like, you guys have called me to be your pastor. I ought to know what I'm doing. I don't want mercy to be a pastor. I ought to know what I'm doing. I don't want mercy to be a husband. I mean, I'm already a husband. If I confess I need mercy, am I confessing that I really have no idea what I'm doing? Yeah, that's exactly what you're confessing. What are the areas of your life, the things in your world that you say, I don't want to ask for mercy for that because I want to keep living under the illusion that I've got that part covered. Boy, isn't it refreshing to take the load off of pretending like you don't need mercy. Isn't that a relief in itself? Carrie and I were talking last night about some of the hard things and, and even some of the ways her and I respond to things in life that are not healthy or good or right or holy. And then our conversation veered towards like, what do you do about it? And how our natural response is telling ourselves how to do better next time when really God's invitation to us is to bring that to him. Not to figure out how to respond as a better parent next time boy, I really blew it, and so next time I really have got to do this. I got news for you. You're going to get in that moment again, and you're going to go right back. Now, I've really got to avoid this temptation that, no, no, you're, you're going to get right back into that moment. What God wants you to do when he gives you the blessing of shining a light on the areas of your life that you need mercy is he wants you to bring that area straight to him and admit that you need mercy. He's not looking for you to be strong enough He's not looking for you to be capable enough. The good news of the gospel is that God is under no illusions of your self-sufficiency. God is well aware of how much you need him. He's waiting on you to catch up. And that's such a blessing. So God will give us mercy, but the hard part is us receiving it. Our last point this morning is how can we become merciful? That's what this beatitude's about, right? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Well, hold on a minute. That sounds quite conditional. You just told me God's ready to give me mercy, but now Jesus is supposedly saying, blessed are the merciful for they're the ones that, so wait, you're telling me if I'm merciful, I'll receive mercy? No, no, no. That's not the way these macarisms work. Remember, that's what a beatitude is. It's a macarism, a wisdom statement. It's not if you're merciful, then you'll receive mercy. That clause, okay, we're gonna get grammar nerdy here for a second. The clause for, it's not saying hey, this is conditional on what came before it. What it's saying is the reason the first part of the statement is true is because this is true. So here's how that plays out in this one. The reason it is blessed, the reason you are flourishing, you are happy if you're merciful is because you've received mercy. The only reason it's a blessing for you to be merciful is if you've received the mercy of God. 
The only reason the first part of this makes sense, the only reason it's good that you're merciful is because you have already received mercy. And if you have not received mercy, you are not going to be merciful. So how can we become merciful? It's not an if-then statement here in this beatitude. So how do we become merciful? Well, first, let's take a little diagnosis of our own hearts. How do you view the misery of others? Do you weep with those who weep? Does your heart go out in brokenness to people whose hearts are broken? Would people in your life say that you're sympathetic? How do you respond to the misery of people? I think we've gotta ask questions like this to to get to our own heart to figure out, wait a minute, where, where am I on this mercy spectrum? And I think when we realize where we are first, we have to receive God's mercy. You can't pass on what you don't possess yourself. We've got to receive God's mercy. But the neat thing about receiving God's mercy is that we are not just recipients of it. We become the very tools that God wants to use so other people can receive God's mercy. Isn't that incredible? Nathan and I were praying together this morning. Shameless plug, you're invited to come pray with us at 8 a.m. every Sunday morning. When we were here praying this morning, we were praying about just the way God's working on the worship team and the church, praying for God to do what we can't do. And I'm sitting here praying, and I'm thinking to myself, God, what a crazy plan. You could do this thing perfectly, but you entrust us to do ministry, knowing we're gonna fail at it. But you slap your name on us and let us go represent you to other people. Because that's the, when you receive mercy, all of a sudden you bear the name of God towards people. You bear the name of God towards people. And and I heard a a counselor doing some training a couple weeks ago, and he said, you know, being a counselor is less like being a teacher and more like being an ambassador. A teacher is ready to give you a bunch of information and to teach you a bunch of things you don't know. But he actually said most of the time the problems in counseling are not information problems. It's that people aren't experiencing what they already know to be true. And so what they need is not you to teach them more things. They need to see you as an extension of the way God views them. So when you listen to them attentively, you are being the hands and feet of God showing them this is the way God views you but we've got to receive God's mercy before we can give it to others, but that is exactly what God wants to do is as we receive it, we're pouring it out to others. The second thing we see about how to become merciful is that this is about being before it's about doing. It does not say blessed are those who do a bunch of merciful acts. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are these kinds of people. So what, you may be asking me, Here's what that means. I I think most of the time we try to do good deeds towards people who are in need. Maybe it's out of guilt. Maybe it's out of like, oh my goodness, I really need to do something or you see something and you go, oh. Maybe you skip the broken heart part of mercy and you just go from seeing the need and you're just like, let me just kind of get you off my conscience. But this is about being a merciful kind of person. Not just leaving here today and going, wow, I've got to go do six things this week, seven, that, 10 things this week to make up. I've got to try to do a bunch of mercy acts. 
Jesus is saying, no, no, I want you to be shaped and formed into the kind of person that oozes mercy. That if you get pricked, you're gonna bleed mercy. That it just overflows from you. I want you to be that kind of person, which means we've gotta ask, how do I become that kind of person? This isn't just about writing down a checklist of things to go do this week. That's not how we apply scripture. When we read scripture and we see something like this or any command, we've gotta ask, what kind of person do I need to become that lives this out? How do I become a merciful kind of person? I think there are some really practical things we can look at this morning. One of them, one of them is moving towards others. And do we kind of pull back when we see brokenness in our world? Do, when you see brokenness, are you gonna, is your inclination to move towards it and to lean in? Even if you don't have answers, I'll tell you that holds me back so much. I don't have an answer of where I envision a conversation could go, and so I don't even want to have it at all. Or I see a certain kind of brokenness that I feel like I'm not equipped to handle or don't know what to do with, even though God's put it right in front of me, and I'm like, I'm not gonna move towards that and trust God's grace to be sufficient in this moment. I'm actually gonna kind of pull back. I pray that our disposition would be to move towards people. Another way we can become a merciful person, uh, are you generous? Now remember, we're talking about the kinds of rhythms and habits we can embrace to become merciful. One of them is giving. It, it's just giving. Part of being merciful is being generous. Say, so, okay, how do I become a generous person? You don't, you don't give because you're generous. You're generous because you've given over and over and over, that it's become second nature to you to hold things with an open hand and be ready to give them away. I've been blessed to serve under leaders my entire life who've gotten that. And I've been the recipient of it. So you don't wait until you're feeling generous to start giving. You start giving and trust that God's gonna make you generous. And so maybe that means you need to start giving even to Shalford. Because your money belongs to the Lord, and if you're not gonna be generous with the money that you have, how are you gonna be merciful in brokenness? How are you gonna meet needs in your world with your neighbors or foster care or international crises that God wants to? One simple thing you can do is put it in your budget every month to give money away. And it's super easy here. You can literally, this is what I do, you can have it auto just come out of your bank account. You don't have to think about like, I need to go in there and do that or most of us may not even own checks anymore and you're like, how do I write the thing and drop it in the, you can go do all of that automatically but if you begin to give regularly, it will change your mindset on everything else that you own. You'll begin to hold everything with an open hand. Giving will make you generous. But if you don't give, trying to work up a generous spirit will never make you give. Just won't. A lot of times our heart will follow our actions if we're faithful to embrace it. What about relational mercy? Are you merciful in your relationships? Like the Matthew 18 unforgiving servant who didn't want to forgive and show the mercy that was shown to him. Do you realize the weight God has forgiven us of in sin? I mean, eternal cosmic treason, God says, I'm not holding it on you anymore because of the sacrifice of Jesus. How does that manifest itself in our relationships? 
your closest relationships? What would your family say? What would your closest friends say? What would your spouse or your kids say? Are you merciful? Or are you exacting, ready to bring, to bring consequences and judgment, ready to bring retribution and to make things right and to be just? Or are you merciful in your relationships? Another way is you could pray for others. If we want to have a merciful heart towards others, maybe we could pray for them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a fantastic little book called Life Together. And in that, he talks about people that you're not getting along with. Can we just say, like, we all have people like that? We're into admitting things here at Shalford. Right? Like, relationships are difficult. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, something special happens when I pray for someone. He says, they're face is transformed from someone that I hate to someone for whom Christ died. Again, our hearts will follow our actions there. Is there someone that you are just at your wits end with? Maybe even someone you're not supposed to be at your wits end with, like your spouse or your kids or someone in this room and you think, I I don't want to speak to them. I don't want to see them. I don't want to get in there. I don't want to do that anymore. I am done. Would you commit to pray? And maybe if you commit to pray, God will transform. You think God's gonna change them. And maybe God will change you. Maybe God, that's how God works as we pray for others. That's how God worked in my life. As Carrie and I prayed 12 months ago about whether or not we'd even be here. We thought we would be gone. And I was praying for God to change my circumstances and God used prayer to change me instead of my circumstances. And I just, I just wonder if that's what God's inviting you to today. Is there someone you need to commit that's hard for you to show mercy to? Maybe God wants you to commit to pray for that person. Like we said, the mercy we really need from God is specific mercy found in Jesus Christ. So maybe you need to commit to the discipline of trying to share the gospel. You know, the greatest mercy we can show someone is by giving them the good news of Jesus. So do you have a family member, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker who doesn't know Jesus? And this is not like a one-time bomb that you drop in their life and back up. This is a persistent, faithful, over a long period of time. Alex and I were just talking about this this morning. Evangelism, sharing the gospel, is done really over a long period of time. As you're sharing the good news of Jesus, and you might share aspects of it and hear their questions and pray for them, and then it might take time after time. It might take years for God to work in their life. But if you wanna be merciful towards people, we can't just take pity on their sort of outward misery. We can't just take pity on their outward misery because if we do, this was the social gospel in the early part of the 1900s, was just purely surface level, let's meet needs, let's care for people, let's give them clean drinking water, and all those things are needed. I don't wanna ignore any of those. I want us to be number one in line to do all of that. But if that's all we do, we'll pack their nice new clothes and nice new suitcases and buy them a first class ticket to eternity separated from God. But if we want to have real, heavy, eternal mercy on people, we've got to care about their souls. And we've got to be asking ourselves, does this person know Jesus? This person that I'm 
give them a cup of water to, this person that I'm trying to be merciful towards, do, do they know Jesus? And maybe what God wants you to lean into this morning is a lifestyle of asking that question and moving towards people who may not know him so that you can be the mouthpiece, the tool that God uses to bring somebody to him. The last thing for how we can become merciful, and I will just warn you, you thought evangelism was the one, you were like, no, way too uncomfortable. This might be the most uncomfortable one. Learn to receive mercy from others. It's one thing to admit you need it from God. It's one thing to admit you're not merciful towards others. But you know in those hard relationships, you might be the hard one. You might be the one that's difficult. You might be the one that's wronged someone else. You might be the burden. Or you might be in a season of life that you have great needs. Maybe your whole life you've been a hard worker and you've provided for yourself. And with age, there has come less and less ability. And now you're in a season where you have to ask for help. Are you willing to receive mercy from a, Maybe you're in a season where you're like, I, I shouldn't have lost my job. I'm too young to lose my job. I'm at this prime season where I'm supposed to have a great job and house and the cars and the kit, and I don't have any of that and I just lost my job and I need help and there's really no excuse. I don't want to receive mercy from you guys. That's, that's embarrassing. We've got to learn to receive mercy from one another and that means being a safe place where people can talk about their real needs because Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. And as we come to a close this morning, I, I couldn't help but think, if you've ever or if you've never been to a church, we've all wondered whether church people are actually merciful, <laughs> right? If you've never been to a church, maybe you've got this caricature in your head of the mean old person screaming, get off my lawn with the John 3.16 sign hanging by the front door. Maybe you've been to church and you've seen, we've all seen grumpy Christians. I was a grumpy Christian yesterday, this morning. Like, we've all experienced grumpy Christians, right? What kind of community would we be, though, if Jesus formed us into merciful people? What kind of community of, as a church would we be if we embraced two radical ideas? One, I'm in desperate need of God's mercy. And two, I'm God's tool to show mercy to others. What kind of community could we be? See, I've come to dream about this when I dream about vision for our church. I don't dream about numbers anymore or buildings or any of that. I dream about the quality of our community. When someone walks through those doors, they walk into a faith family that's merciful. And they say, I felt safe to share my sin, I felt safe to share my sorrow, I felt safe to be honest about how needy I really was. And it's only there when I got to be honest about how needy I was that Jesus met me. That's the kind of church I dream of. And I've gotta be number one on my knees saying, God, I am in radical, desperate need of your mercy. And we can all start there today. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider mercy, not just how we need to be merciful to others, but how we need to receive your mercy, 
I pray that we would all be humbled. I pray that you'd give us the grace to confess our need for you, God. And I pray that you'd work in all of our hearts. I've been praying all week, God. First, preach to me before I preach to others. Change me with this text and change the hearers with this text, God. We need, Father, your great mercy. Because our lives don't go according to plan and our sin is way heavier than we ever thought it would be. And so I pray that you would remove that burden from some folks here this morning from trying to carry their own sin. But the solution to their heavy burden this morning, God, is not that they figure out how to get stronger, but that they come and they exchange burdens with Christ. And God, I pray that our church family would be marked by mercy. That you'd give us eyes to see the misery around us. Physical misery, but also spiritual misery. I pray that you would break our hearts for what breaks yours. And I pray that you would move us to action to bring relief to those that we see. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.